All right, thank you, thank you, George Harrison. We're playing you today because it's 50 years since the album All Things Must Pass was released. It was kind of significant at the time. And that's kind of my favorite song off of it. I do like some others better, but different albums. So from Chicago, here we are. Thank you for joining us. Welcome all sisters and brothers, family, friends and neighbors and citizens of the world to another edition of Live from the Heartland. Now being called Heartland at Home. As you can see, we're on Zoom and this is the 63rd edition of Heartland at Home for the week of August 7th. Today, we're welcoming election law activist and guru in training, Ed Mullen. We're also welcoming Michael Helen Wood and Olivia Chase of the Injustice for All Film Festival International and our faithful Olympics correspondent, Gordon Thompson will bring us through to the end of the Olympics. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing Good there? Good morning to you, Katie. I got my arm in a sling. Yeah, I had the operation after we recorded the last show. It's been a week. Uh, I don't have any more pain. I, uh, I'm getting a lot of attention. I'm watching a lot of Olympics. Uh, it's a little hard doing things with no hand. I got to keep this thing strapped to my body for the next six weeks. So we will keep you posted week by week. And, uh, but I'm good enough to keep going and doing the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for being here, Michael. I know that uh, you should actually have had the week off, but we've got a packed show. So um, we're not gonna talk to you today about the Nigerian fisherwoman who are uh, chasing on Chevron for messing with the environment. We will though. And we're not gonna talk about the Indigenous People Day Coalition. We will though next week when we're not as busy. Um, but today, let's just uh, remind people that you're going to hear a new phrase a lot, proof of vaccination um, and how to have it. This week, President Biden actually uh, told people what leadership looks like in vis-a-vis -vis the vaccination program, asking states to please, um, governors of states to please at least get out of the way if they can't help. Um, and he was talking to Texas and Florida who are trying to pass anti-mask mandate laws. Well, a little bit following up on that, I did see a piece in the Washington Post by a fellow named Greg Sargent. It was an opinion piece. And he basically off of that said the Democrats should continue to get more aggressive uh, in criticizing the Republicans. And they talked about three things, uh, creating conflict around the virus, uh, how they are portraying the insurrection from originally saying uh, after it happened that, that it was terrible and bad and Trump played a role to now trying to deny that and continuing to sow disruption around the outcome of the election. It's a good piece. It was a couple of days ago, Greg Sargent in the Washington Post. Well, this is the week, um, folks, in case you haven't been keeping up with it. And I got to credit Indivisible, which comes into my email box regularly. Um, this is the day today <clears throat> and tomorrow and everything up until um, August 9th, I believe, to call your senators, uh, say thank you for the good job you're doing, Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth, and we must have the For the People Act. For the People Act, also known as the John Lewis Act, which will set national standards that protect the vote in all federal elections. Folks are being arrested in DC for 
for this, doing civil disobedience for this. The Texan lawmakers who left their state rather than be forced to vote on some of these voter suppression tactics are in DC also pleading with the Senate to pass the For the People Act. This is one of those moments, folks. Which side are you on? Okay, I'm gonna call my senators, Katie. I promise. Okay, I'll keep and, uh, We're gonna take a little short break. Uh, we wanna thank you for listening to Live from the Heartland here on 88.7 WLUW.org worldwide. And uh, we'll be right back with our first guest, Ed Mullen, talking about the Illinois Supreme Court after we hear a little bit from Warren Zevon. I was gambling in Havana I took a little risk Send lawyers, guns and money Dead, get me out of this Hey, Ed Mullen, it's great to have you here. Uh, we understand that you've been traveling around the great state of Illinois, sounding the alarm and waking folks up about the important, but often overlooked by the voters, races for the Illinois Supreme Court. Tell us what's going on and why we need to start paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. In Illinois, we elect judges and judges tend to be at the bottom of the ballot and they get a lot less attention and there's a lot of voter drop off. So people know who they're gonna vote for, for president or congressperson or governor, but then when they get to the bottom of the ballot and they see the judges, they, they don't recognize the names and they don't pay as much attention. And in addition to that, uh, the Republicans do pay attention more than the Democrats pay attention to, to the judges. And they use judicial races um, to bring out people for other races. And they use judicial races to um, win in, in places where they shouldn't win uh, because the voter turnout is low. So I think the Democrats have done a very poor job over the years of using uh, the courts uh, as, as part of the electoral uh, strategy. So... When you do this uh, barnstorming that, that you described to me um, that you are doing around the state, what in your experience are the best methods to get voters to pay attention and learn about the races that they might otherwise overlook? Well, I think we have an Illinois Supreme Court race that has an opportunity to get more attention than some of the typical judicial races. But one of the things that I've done over the years has been on the board of the Judicial Accountability Pact. And one of the things we did was the Dump Coughlin uh, campaign a couple of years ago, which was one of the mm -hmm. first races where a candidate was not retained for uh, Cook County Circuit Court judge in, in decades. And the reason that I think that campaign was so successful is that there was a really easy story to tell about the importance of that race uh, and the uh, racial disparities of what that judge had done as a judge. And I think with this Illinois Supreme Court, we can tell the same types of stories because we have a Supreme Court that is currently 4-3 Democratic. And the problem is that the three Democratic seats in Cook County are solid Democratic seats. There are two counties or two districts outside of Cook County that are solid Republican seats. And there are two districts that are swing districts. So we could wind up with a 5-3 
our 5-2 Democratic court, or we could wind up with a 4-3 Democratic court, or we could wind up with a 4-3 Republican court. And mm -hmm. if we wind up with a 4-3 Republican court, they're going to be making decisions about uh, the recent criminal justice bill that uh, was passed and, and how that's interpreted about the uh, pro-abortion law that was passed uh, two or three years ago and how that's going to be interpreted in the state if the Supreme Court makes changes to Roe v. Wade that's before it right now. So there, there's a lot of stories that you can tell about the importance of what the Supreme Court in Illinois is going to be doing to people on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and, and I think that's going to help bring people out because it, it affects their lives. It's not something abstract. Can, can do we know yet who the candidates are and, and how they're looking or, or is that yet to be, I know it's a ways away, but. There, the candidates are starting to announce. So there are two districts that are open right now. There's the second district, which is Lake, Kane, McHenry, DeKalb and Kendall. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, there are three candidates that are exploring or announced and possibly a fourth candidate. And then in the third district, which is DuPage and Will and Kankakee and a few other Western counties, um, there are two announced Democratic candidates that I'm aware of. And both of those candidates are very strong. They are an appellate court justice and a sitting Kane uh, court uh, judge and, and very strong candidates. In the second district, um, Mayor Nancy Rotering uh, has filed paperwork to run and she's a strong uh, progressive. And then there are two sitting judges, one in Lake County and one in Kane County who uh, have announced that they're they're running as well in that district. So there are some candidates that that have announced uh, because the primary was moved from uh, March to June. I think the timing of when people have to announce has been changed a little. So so there is still time for people to get in the race. But in terms of of fundraising and endorsements and campaign support, I think you know September maybe October is probably. Uh, the time, the realistic time for candidates to get get into the race. And uh, what does it tell us that the Democrats won the presidency in 2020, did really well here in Illinois, other Democratic candidates did well, but at the top of the ballot was the fair tax amendment, graduated income tax, which we all were working very solidly for. And in the 49th Ward, we had the highest uh, turnout for that or percentage of the vote for that. What does it tell you, though, that it tell us that we lost the fair tax amendment and how that will I think, relate? To I, the I think the court. first thing I think the first thing it tells us is that Republicans are going to spend a lot of money on these races like they did on the fair tax amendment, because it's the, the same types of issues that are important to them. And so um, they're, they're going to spend a lot of money on these races. And so the, the opposition is going to need to be very well organized and have strong messaging uh, as well as raising money. Um, the fair tax was not actually at the top of the ballot. It was sort of in a weird place, uh, depending on where you were in the county. So there was actually some counties where it was very difficult to find and to understand that the fair tax amendment was actually on the ballot. And there were some organizing concerns around that based on, <laughs> on how certain um, counties organized their ballot. Um, but here it, it is going to be at the bottom of the ballot. And that means that, I mean, not, not way at the bottom of the ballot, but after the federal and, and uh, general assembly offices. So it's going to be important to educate people um, on the importance of this race and, and who the candidates are. And I think you're right that the fair tax amendment 
says something about how, um, you know, even though we are a democratic state, we're not necessarily liberal and progressive outside of, of Cook County. And so we have to be, be aware of that um, in, in both our strategy uh, and, and looking at who the candidates are going to be. You know, I, I looked at the maps, um, the redrawn maps, and it, I, am a, I am something of an election professional myself. And this whole, the whole lineup of courts, circuit courts, district courts, and, and how the um, population needs to be equalized in order to have the Supreme Court districts. Is that, am I, am I right about that? They try so to- The population, you know, you, you've got this idea of one person, one vote in most electoral systems, but with judges, it's a little bit different because the building block is not a block. So if I'm drawing an aldermanic map or I'm drawing a state representative map, you know, I literally am drawing that block by block and I can take a precinct and I can move it. Um, I can take a block and I can move it. But in your, in your Illinois Supreme Court, your building block is the circuit court. So you've got the circuit court of Cook County as, as one of your building blocks. So it gives you a lot less flexibility in terms of how you build a Supreme Court district. But what it also does is it means that you, they're not gonna be as equal as an aldermanic map because your, your building blocks are not equal. So the, the need for it to be exactly one to one to one is not the same as it is with a general assembly map or an, or an aldermanic map. So there's a little more flexibility in terms of the size of the districts, but in terms of the building blocks, you can't, you can't split up, for instance, the Lake County into, into two because Lake County is one district. circuit court district and you've got to have the Supreme Court over a circuit court district. Uh, you've gotten very good at explaining that to the um, un, unenlightened or uh, the uneducated about the very confusing thing. Let me ask you one other question uh, before we let you go. What, what has been the lawyers and court professionals reactions to doing court by Zoom this whole past year and a half in Cook County and how varied district to district is the practice of virtual proceedings. Has everyone been like our, our courts here? Or have Everything come? has been remote for the past year and a half. And there has been some in-person proceedings, particularly when you're talking about criminal trials, those they've been trying to bring those uh, in order to comply with the speedy trial mandates, but even those um, have really been delayed. And I think from the lawyer's perspective, things like status conferences, case management conferences, and, and basic motion practice, um, doing that over Zoom is very convenient. You know, you don't have to get in your car and drive to the courthouse and go through security and sit and wait. You know, you, you just get on the Zoom call when you need to, and it saves you time, it saves your client money, and, and it works really well. Where it's difficult is with things like depositions, where you want to be looking at uh, the person's reactions, you want to be showing them exhibits and documents, um, or when you have a witness that you're trying to question uh, in, in a courtroom setting, it's much more difficult to do that over Zoom. So I think you're going to find that uh, those things will be continued in person and, and smaller things will, will continue to be by, by Zoom. And I, I, I think it's, it's provided a lot of convenience, not only for the lawyers, but, but it's, it's given clients more access to lawyers because they have more time and they don't have to bill as much 
for small court hearings. Ed, uh, before we go, uh, pretend that I'm someone that you're trying to talk to, to convince, to uh, pay attention to the Supreme Court. What do you tell me? What do you say about the Illinois Supreme Court and what it does and what's coming up that needs to be paid attention to? Right. So there, there's a 10-year term for Supreme Court justices. So this is a 10-year mistake if we mess it up. Um, we're talking about the balance of power. So you think about how much we spent on Georgia's Senate races to make sure that Senate was in Democratic hands. This is the same type of situation where we, we've got to put all of those resources and energy into that race, even if it might not be our district, because we're talking about the balance of power. The Supreme Court justices appoint circuit court and appellate court vacancies. So they are setting up who the people who are gonna be on the bench in the future are. So things like diversity and, and progressive values are really important uh, in appointing new judges. They issue the Supreme Court rules. So when you talk about the criminal rules or pro, pro se rules for people who are representing themselves and the ability of people to get into court, um, the Supreme Court does ju doesn't just rule on cases, they set up the rules for the entire system. So there's a lot more that Supreme Court judges do than I think people really understand. And you've got to look at the whole package of what a Supreme Court justice does when you're talking about this election, because there's so much more than just saying, okay, they're going to decide on, you know, some cases every year. They have control over, uh, they have a lot of control over the entire uh, legal system in the state of Illinois, and their influence is much broader than just deciding. And, and deciding cases is really important, but their influence is much broader than that. And and I think talking about the um, personal impact on people, you know, if you're a landlord tenant issue, if you've got a criminal justice issue, whatever, um, this this affects you. And everyone goes to court sometime. You know, they get divorced, they file bankruptcy, whatever it is. Um, you're going to wind up in court at some point in your lifetime, and you, you want to make sure that that system is, is working for you and not against you. Ed Mullen, you are uh, definitely the election law guru. We will come back to you as this very important election year unfurls. So uh, stay, stay healthy, stay strong. Thank you so much for this. Right, thank you, guys. It was good to see both of you. We'll see you again. Peace Take out. Care. Okay, we're going to be right back with our next guest. Uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of I've Got the Power by Snap. And uh, we'll be back with uh, Michael Helen Woods and Olivia Chase talking about the Injustice for All Film Festival International. Stay tuned.
All right. Yes, thank you for choosing that song. Michael Helen Woods, welcome to Live from the Heartland. And Olivia Chase, welcome to Live from the Heartland. Um, thank you so much for having us. Thank it's you. It's a pleasure. All right, let's uh, kick it off, Michael. Uh, well, this question's for Olivia and uh, Trinity United Church and uh, something called the Next Movement appear to be important partners in this festival. Can you elaborate on the roots of the fest? How did it come to be? What made it happen? Give us the details. I'd love to. So Michael, you already know that I love to do backstory, right? <laughs> you asked. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> Trinity United Church of Christ, of course, on Chicago's South Side has a storied, storied history as a faith community with a strong social justice bent. Um, in December of 2010, Michelle Alexander came to Trinity to do a talk about her new book, which is now a classic, The New Jim Crow. So we had this amazing uh, conversation with um, Professor Alexander, and within 10 days, uh, Daryl Brown, who is a longtime member of uh, Trinity's uh, prison ministry, uh, put together a convening of people from all over the city, all kinds of folks. It, it was an amazing group of about 100, about 100 people showed up. Uh, justice advocates, uh, people, prison abolitionists, and, and people who wanted to get on board with, how can we chip away at this monstrous thing, this mass incarceration? So 10 days, 100 people, and uh, we formed a committee, a special committee of Trinity's prison ministry, and we called it the next movement. Um, so we were gathering supporters, but really working hard to, um, we were working in coalition with other groups across the city, but trying to figure out how do we win hearts and minds? How do we educate or re-educate people? And uh, that takes us into Curly Cohen. You may know Curly. Oh, we know Curly. Are you kidding? What, what can I say? Are you kidding? Well, <laughs> he's in more to say. He's then, then okay, I'm speaking. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm preaching to the choir here. You, are. <laughs> uh, you know, he is a wow. powerful ancestor now, and yeah. we can feel that power, right? So, Curly joined the next movement. You know, I I can't. I don't recall exactly how. We're thinking someone from our prison ministry had connection with Curly with the work the prison ministry was doing inside because prison ministry not only does letters, but they go inside, um, you know. So Curly is a, mute, a movie guy. There you, totally, you know. So know. he's coming to the meetings, he's engaged in what we're doing and we're sitting around one Saturday in uh, October October of 2013. And we're trying to figure out how to bring more people to the table, how to bring more people to this movement. And Curly stops the meeting by saying, let's have a film festival. Well, I, I, I so love this connection. I can't tell <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. And, and he was a film guy. You, you, got, you know that. Uh, we hadn't met Peter yet, Peter Kuttner. Um, but that took 
us into this foray of doing the Injustice for All Film Festival. So that's the connection, the full arc. Michael, have I left out anything? Now we're into our seventh iteration. This year is our seventh iteration. And um, at the point that Curly became an ancestor that year, I think it was 2017, we named the fan favorite uh, award for Curly in his honor. And we're gonna pay special tribute to him this year. What have I left out, Michael? Hey, I don't think you've left out anything. It's a perfect segue. And so you guys want me to continue the story about the present or did you have a specific question? Well, I, I, we did, we were wondering in the seven years, uh, well, in it's probably more years than that now, um, but in all of your film festivals, did you have you know some big moments, movies given their first or at minimum impactful platform here through you guys? Um, any of those kind of breakthrough moments for films or for filmmakers you understand oh, you, did you want to speak to that or well two that stand out for me one is um the festival's capacity to honor young filmmakers and particularly young chicagoans and i'm thinking specifically of quinn riley this is a perfect arc she's a young poet uh young activist part of byp 100 asada's daughters and you, you know the groups, the, the, the young folks out, you know, uh, doing it right now. Um, she is also a filmmaker, and we linked her up with an amazing returning citizen who has become quite the activist. Um, and they did a little film uh, together, and I'll never forget that. Um, it was a powerful experience for both of them. Tell, um, tell us yeah. her name again, Quinn what? Quinn, Quinn, Quinn Riley. Um, And I'm going to speak a little bit more about her. But to Olivia's point, the one that stands out for me and Olivia has been involved with the festival from its beginning. I've been just with the last four years. But the film that I really think was amazing was called Sizing Barbara Sizemore. I think that was the name of it. And it dealt with a charter school on the south side of Chicago a documentary film, and they were up for recertification. And it kind of showed the ins and outs of the school, how their their whole cult, their school culture, their enthusiasm for what they did, the commitment that the teachers and the other administrators had. And I just thought that was a phenomenal film. I think generally there are a number of films in this year's festival and in previous festivals that have been Chicago-centric or Chicago-focused. And those, because we are you know, in Chicago, they, they uh, have a special place in our heart, so to speak. But make no mistake, the festival this year and actually in years past is an international festival. We have got uh, entries from um, around the world. And that's what makes it kind of exciting because to Olivia's point, you know, when she was talking about how do we how do we um, build more of a movement? How do we get people better? Uh, you know, understanding about the the uh, the direness of mass incarceration. And by the way, the rate of mass incarceration in the United States is the highest in the world. Yeah. That is uh, uh, that is something that uh, uh, is that we should be ashamed of. 
Sorry. Well, yeah. We should be. And Isabel Wilkerson points that out in her book, Cast. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the point of it is, is we as a uh, organization are committed to uh, the whole idea of absolving mass incarceration, what that means. And so a lot of the films deal with mass incarceration or they deal with uh, the criminal justice system and other uh, human um, human um, issues that relates to us as humanity by yeah. uh, crimes against humanity is what I meant to say. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that is, she gave a perfect segue, but I, I did want to speed up a little bit to give you a better understanding of where we are. The festival itself uh, will take place August 12th through 21st of this year. The festival is free. And for the first time, it's 100% virtual. Part of this was because of, um, you know, the COVID and, you know, we, we just decided to, to make it that way. And so we partnered with Eventive, which is a virtual film platform. And so we, the festival is locked and loaded and ready to go <laughs> during those days. Um, and um, one, a viewer just has to go to our website and order tickets. Again, it is free. So I just, I can't stress that enough. Uh, our website would be www.injusticeforallff.com. So I just wanted to make sure, and it is, you are open, it is open now for ticket ordering. So I didn't want to say that. Um, Go ahead. The other thing I wanted to say is it's a little bit more, this is the cool thing about the festival. It's a little bit more than just showing films. I mean, films are, is important. Don't get me wrong, because we've got 27 films. We are showing 13 shorts and then 14 full features. But we've also woven in six poets who will be doing spoken words on the particular topics at hand. Um, and to Olivia's point, that does include Quinn Riley, who's a phenomenal poet in Chicago, well known in Chicago. It includes uh, uh, Gertie Jessica Mascarenas, another well known poet. And believe it or not, it includes um, our senior pastor, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, who actually goes by the, the pen name, if you will, OM3. So, I mean, you know, th that's what's kind of cool about that. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and additionally, the, the festival itself will also have what we would, cons what we would call like um, panel discussions, uh, uh, Zoom panel discussions. So in, in theory, it is the films, it is the poets, it is the panel discussions on a variety of topics from prison reform to paths to uh, a race, uh, to a racism free society to domestic violence. And I was gonna ask Olivia to talk about one of the panels that she's knee deep in, which is organizing across differences, uh, restorative justice. So these are woven into, and it's really eight panels that also complement the festival itself. Um, and so Olivia wanted to speak about the one that she's working on, that would be great. Oh, I'm excited to talk about that one. That's right in, right in my wheelhouse. 
celebrates the set-apart organizing work back in the late 60s, Chairman Fred Hampton, that powerful ancestor, the work that the Illinois um, uh, chapter of the Black Panther Party did with the young, um, um, the young patriots, uh, the, the young lords. I think I got one, one of those names wrong, but got we've got, right. I'm you sorry? You got them both right. right. Okay, so um, we're celebrating that work with three films. Two films are Peters from the archive, amazing uh, shorts. And one is, um, is it the original Rainbow Coalition or the first Rainbow Coalition? It's called the first, the first, I think it's called the first Rainbow Coalition or as we're presenting it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Fabulous film, fabulous film. Um, but we've got Billy, Billy Che Brooks from um, uh, the Black Panther Party. We've got Sheila McNary from the party. We've got uh, Omar Lopez uh, from the Young Lords. Uh, we don't have anyone from the Young Patriots, but we also have Helen Schiller joining that conversation. Um, and we've got two fabulous uh, young activists, uh, Damon Williams, um, who's just done all kinds of work, um, part of a number of groups. And of course, Gwen, Quinn Riley, um, who's also a young activist, both of them boots on the ground, young folks. So we're going to have this intergenerational conversation. We want to invite the community in so we can all talk about that powerful work and the legacy, uh, what was left behind that laid the foundation for uh, some lasting change in, in our city of Chicago. And, Michael, and, and, and sorry, go ahead. Well, Michael, I was going to ask you about when the when the festival wasn't virtual. What venues hosted the films? And it may be too early, but your take on the positives and negatives of an entirely virtual festival. I, I could say what makes it. Uh, I'm going to start with your last question. I actually, the, the idea of a virtual festival, which we thought was something we had to do out of necessity, has actually turned out to be a blessing because we've got, again, people are beginning to sign up from all across the country, which you, uh, quite, quite honestly just blew, blew me away. I mean, we've got people signing up left and right. And we've actually asked for donations this year too. So we're beginning to get ahead of ourselves. So the, the concept of we wanted to do something that would uh, build up advocacy and build up understanding about these issues is growing. So that's the benefit of it being virtual. Now, to your point, when we didn't have it virtual and all of the venues were in Chicago and they were across the city of Chicago, at, at times, with some years we would have something like 30 venues and we would, you know, so, and we would show the films multiple in multiple locations. So the, the actually, the, the actual feeling, sharing energy of the room in that regard is, probably a, a con that we don't have this year. Sure. But I, I think, you know, it's like to your point, Michael, it's, and, it's pros and cons on both sides. What I did want to say, and let's not forget this about the festival, it is a competition. So we, even with the filmmakers, you know, there is prizing, 
you know, the judges have ruled, so to speak, and that's on the last day of the festival. So, you know, we're all staying tuned to figure out who that is. And of course, as Olivia mentioned, the highlight of it is the Curly Cohen Fan Favorite Award, which the viewers, that's beautiful, the viewers, uh, the audience of the festival, uh, they're the ones who vote on what their favorite film is the most popular film is named for him so I mean I I you know I I didn't want people to lose sight of that particular factor let me ask another question uh quickly uh what do you uh, what do you think it's really going to take to change the way we do mass incarceration I mean a film festival is a start (laughs) what kind of organizing uh what kind of a you know just how people perceive it. I mean, locking people in cages, clearly that hasn't worked. And uh, it's it's a big deal. It takes a lot of money. It destroys a lot of lives. And the broader, you know, on the, you know, on the spectrum, what do you think we have to do? Olivia, were you gonna come? Well, I'm just gonna say a couple of things. So I'm preaching to the choir here, Michael and Katie. I, I know you know this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning a lot. <laughs> this is capitalism. This is racial capitalism that underlies all of this, um, this mass incarceration piece. Again, using primarily black and brown bodies for profit. That's one thing. The other thing is we have to continue the struggle, but we've got to bring more people into this, which is why we're doing the film festival. Okay, why we we chose to do this. We've got to shift more hearts and minds. I'm feeling that we've kind of um, hit a point where more people kind of, they get it. Um, And we're doing, we've had some victories. You know, the the In Money Bail Coalition, look at that. We were a part of that, along with a, a bunch of other groups. But it's slow, steady work. It doesn't happen like that. Uh, but we've got to bring more people into the struggle, I think. And that, that's, that's kind of my thought. I don't have any big, brilliant answer for you. Oh, that's, um, that's we've just got to keep chipping away at it. Um, no, yeah, that was perfect. And, you know, you're absolutely right. The, the, during the last election, um, the amount of people that chipped in to uh, pay people's fines in Florida so that they could actually uh, get a ballot to vote Yes. was an amazing, uh, wonderful show of how much consciousness has been raised thanks to the sister who wrote the new Jim Crow and yes. everything that has happened since then. Um, We're gonna have to go because we have one last guest, but uh, can I just mention, you have a great website, by the way, really good website and a, an impressive list of sponsors with Sponsors being so necessary to events supporting the arts, usually. How does a group stay available and you know, supportive and close to the grassroots organizers while simultaneously trying to get next to some money people and be you know, an ever greater force in the art world? Art world. I would just say it's like-minded souls, so to speak, because I know if we talk about like Euclid Methodist Church, Episcopal Church, as an example, I mean, they've been involved with us 
as a sponsor. And Olivia knows because she's been the, the one who's been kind of like the point person for them. But it is like-minded. And that, Michael, speaks to what you were saying. There are a number of people, people are beginning to awaken and recognize the human injustices of the United States. And so seeking out, searching those folks who are like-minded and are willing to donate. And sometimes, you know, a donation is good. You know, we don't I, don't, I don't necessarily have to have you like boots on the ground all the time. We got people who do that and this. It's just uh, being able to access all of the talents that we have for a common good. So uh, I, I think that's how we kind of like take what we can from people that really support our efforts. Michael, Olivia, can't thank you enough for coming. Oh, thank you. This is it's been wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. wonderful. You're to <laughs> in person. Everyone Absolutely. needs to go to your uh, website and look at uh, Injustice for All Film Festival International and sign up. Yes, yes. And just if we got enough time, again, the website, www.injusticeforallff.com. Right on. Peace and blessings, sisters. Ashe. Same to you. Bye-bye. back with a wrap up on the 2020, I mean, 2021 Tokyo Olympics. Um, um, and thanks to Gordon Thompson. Welcome back, Gordo. Uh, we've been thinking about you as we watch the Olympics. Um, I, didn't, I didn't catch this whole story yesterday. So I'm just gonna start off with, um, I saw some, some bad vibes from the four male runners in the relay in their post-race interview. Can you tell me what happened? I missed it. Totally. Yeah, Katie. Hey, uh, hey, Chicago. I'm wearing my uh, chili Olympic shirt that I uh, got from the Pan American Championships. An athlete was able to scan that for now. I get a little closer. Katie, <laughs> you're talking about the men's four by 100 relay. And yes, there were a lot of bad vibes because once again, the USA screwed up the handoffs. We've got amongst the four or five best sprinters in the world, but the four by 100 relay requires that you have good handoffs. It's not necessarily the four fastest guys. It's the three best stick passes that ensures the, the winner. So once again, the U.S. did not practice like they should have, and they let their egos get in the way with all the managers, individual coaches saying, my guy's got to be on this team. When the pool is six people, they can select from six. So instead of the, the I'm just guessing, the U.S. coaches just said, screw it. With all these managers, we're only going to have one or two practices and we'll let, let, it, let it lie. So they didn't practice much and they screwed up from the handoff from the one to two guy. One of the commentators, I uh, said something about um, how the other teams run together a lot more and practice a lot more. And this has happened in the U.S. before. And Carl Lewis, I think today or on Thursday when we're recording, he basically 
was really critical of the whole thing. Yeah, we want to move past this four by 100 relay because it's yeah. a, a bad story. And we, it's just kind of repeating history over and over again of how USA, USA kind of messes things up. It, we got to change our coaching paradigm within the U.S. and how we select our four by 100 relay and then use those people for practice during the year. So we tried it a few years back, but uh, I guess it went nowhere. Hey, I want to go ahead. Give us a good story. Hey, I got three or four feel-good stories from this Olympics, and there is a whole bunch. Um, Michael and Katie, you remember that old song, When the moon hits my eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. So that's what I would start off. Italia, they won the high jump and the men's 100 meters, and the theatrics, the emotions of those two Italians, once they found they got gold, was besides themselves, especially the high jumper, the Italian high jumper, Tam Barry, who really, once he found out that he was sharing the gold with Barshim, the world's God's gift to the high jump, he straddle hugged him like he wanted to date him. And it was just like, holy schmoly, what's going on here? Can we have some decorum? It was unbelievable. Just great show of pure emotion and joy and happiness and hats off. And then when Tam Barry had his gold in pocket there, 15 minutes later, there comes Jacobs, who was born in Texas, El Paso. Here comes Jacobs to win the 100 meters for Italy and then Tamberi gets to celebrate with Jeff Jacobs on the track. And they just have a, an absolute joyous, fun, national time. Uh, Katie, you mentioned in last show how the, the nationalistic of the USA chant and this and that gets, so, gets really tiresome. And yes, it does. But really, when you focus, that's what this uh, Olympics is. We represent countries. So getting involved with the countries a little bit is kind of cool, especially with the relays, but focusing on the individuals is what it's all about. And one individual I want to focus on is the Venezuelan triple jumper who just set a world record. And that woman, she really should be starting in the women's NBA, six feet, four tall, all lean muscle and sinew and full of power. This woman, Yulamar Rojas, not only just won the gold medal, she broke the world record, jumping over 51 feet for the triple jump. If there's any country in the world that needs a feel-good, it's Venezuela. Those people are way hurting. They are suffering day to day, don't know where they can get their next meal out of the grocery market. Hooray for Venezuela and Ms. Rojas. Another feel-good story is the women's 100 meters. Jamaica, one, two, three. Seeing those three Jamaican ladies just enjoy each other's presence, celebrating each other's really great job of a country sweeping. Hey, let's think about what Jamaica is. A couple of million people, an island in the Caribbean. It's not China. It's not USA. It's not even Germany or it's like a limited space and a limited population. These people have got the greatest amount of fun in track and field. They love it. We can't have Usain Bolt anymore. So now we're going to enjoy these ladies, one, two, three, 
And Elaine Thompson, not only just did she win the 100, but she came back and won and dusted the Americans in the 200. I'm not anti-USA. I'm pro-individual. But there is a couple of another good feel-good stories, and that's the 400-meter hurdles for both men and women. First came the men's race, a world, new world record, this Karsten Warholm, who looks like he's right out of Sears catalog for the, in the underwear section. He looks bright-eyed, fresh-faced, doesn't like he's got a single whisker on his face. He goes out there and jams a world record, hitting his left lead leg all the way around and just forcing. He was not winning until the very end. The American is what made him set the new world record and uh, made him just really push himself to the ultimate. And then the women's 400 hurdles, we had uh, our own Sydney McLaughlin from right there in New Jersey, went to University of Kentucky, now's a pro, turned a pro after freshman year at UK. And uh, what an unbelievable young lady just was losing over the 10th hurdle to her teammate, Muhammad, and oh, then great. just phenomenally powered through that last finish t 10 or 20 meters to break the world record, win the Olympic gold, and U.S. went 1-2 in that event. It was a phenomenal race. So the 400 hurdles was really the one event that just was magnanimous. It was unbelievably fantastic. You got so, it on the shot put. Oh, my God. Yeah. USA won two in the shot put. And Ryan Krauser, who won his six throws in the final, every one of them would have been an, a, a, an Olympic record. Every single throw in his six throws would have been an Olympic record. He has mastered that event. But one other American that's right on his heels and is really pushing him was the silver medalist, Jacobs. And he's just just unbelievably tough, and uh, his wife coaches him. So that was also a good USA story for ability for Michael to chant, USA, USA, USA. I'm the guy who does that, right? <laughs> I would say when I was uh, coaching an international team for the Pan Am Juniors, um, we just swept every event and one, two, three U.S. in the 100, the 200, the, the hurdles, the long jump, the triple jump, the this and that. And it got to be, oh, my God, can some other country take some other take a medal, please? So that you just want to feel like somebody else can achieve. So when it was a little bit of over the top USA, USA chant on that trip. But uh, yes. The world does come alive every four years for these Olympic Games. And the true winner is the track. This Mondo surface is a brand new surface that has embedded these granules, these three-dimensional granules that respond to the athlete's pressure down. So it gives back more energy than it receives. Mm -hmm. That is a whole new innovation. So, um, yeah, pretty cool. Hey, Gordo, before we go... Uh Tell us one more time your ideas about how, where the Olympics should be held every four years. Well, it's a no brainer. They should be held exactly um, where the, um, the first one was in 1896. The first modern Olympics was in Athens and that's where it should be every four years. And then maybe a couple of events be satellited out to 
uh, other cities around the world that could potentially host. It's so big that now, and with the added to other events, it's a monstrosity that can't hold on to itself. So uh, every Olympics has lost money, every single one. Maybe Los Angeles is the only one in 84 that has been able to make money, but every single Olympics has lost money and it leaves these white elephants of these monstrous uh, uh, venues up that can't be used. So yeah, that's probably good. And it's been shot around a little while. We'll see, the future of the Olympic games is tenuous. Hey, remember our project that we were going to work on? We were going to try to get a long jump pit built up at the Willie White Park in honor of Willie White. So stay tuned on that. Yeah, we'll let's, we got to get. That, we'll work on that offline, okay? There guys? you go. <laughs> um, I like very much, and I appreciate, Gordo, your enthusiasm and your wisdom and your uh, keeping track of all this stuff for us all. Um, I'm still, uh, I love the Olympics. I find them inspiring. I wish that uh, the doping and the politics and all the rest of that stuff, you know, and, and it sort of does get in the second seat. By the end of the games, you're so taken with these beautiful people doing the best they can with their bodies uh, that, that a lot of that just does fade. Um, yep. Hey, one quick little good field story about politics, the men's fencing team right before there was one guy on the fencing team that wasn't allowed to train or compete with him because he was accused of a sexual offense. So when they were handing out the mess, the team captain handed out three pink masks to his teammates and then one black mask to the offender. And that, and he had no idea it was coming. And that moment where they had three guys wearing the same color pink mask and the one out on his own wearing the black, that message sent a really strong deal unto itself. So way to go, fencing. Way to go, thinking ahead of the time and way to get on top of it. We got to go, dear. We're out of time. That was a great story. Love you, Gordon. Good report. Thank you for the great report. Peace, love, and happiness, Chicago. Go get them. <laughs> All right. Um, Katie, tell us about what's going on uh, tonight. Okay, tonight we've got a movie in the park at our own Loyola Park. It's a wrinkle in time, a good family show. Uh, starts at dusk, wear your mask, bring a blanket, come and see where the movies are. Um, and they're in a lot of parks now. Um, in memoriam, we got a, a kid we knew from the time of his birth, Connor Lee. Uh, was a 39-year-old pilot. He passed away. We are really sorry for the two Nancys, his mother, mothers. Uh, also, Elka Schumann of the Bread and Puppet Theater passed this week at 85 years old. She did great. Bread and Puppet is a great theater. Uh, and we'd like to say goodbye to St. Ignatius Paris right here in our neighborhood who held its last mass. And that's right where Gordo used to live, right across the street. Yeah. All right. So we're going to leave with our Twin Peaks playing Our World. And for over 25 years, we've been glad to bring you live from the Heartland, now Heartland at Home. We're broadcast every Saturday morning at 9 to 10 a.m. Central on WLUW.org worldwide, 88.7 if you're close by. Uh, we're archived uh, on youtube.com slash Heartland Media, and you can find us on Can TV and on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Do good in the world. 
All power, because the world needs all the good that we do. All power. To all the power people. to the people. <laughs> Next week, we'll see you. We got a good one coming up. Adios. Hey